Happy Sabbath. Thank you, Judith. <laughs> it's good to be here today. Um, thank you so much for um, the worship that the Arise students were taking and that, that uh, children's story. Where's Katie? She left. That was such a good children, uh, children's story. And I don't know, she kind of, Leon, did you tell her or Amina told her what the sermon is about? Because that fits in so well. She didn't know. Uh, the Holy Spirit works sometimes in such great ways um, because that story fits in so well with what I want to speak about, about this idea of being obedient and listening and looking at the signs. Um, so today we're going to speak about Grateful Living again. This is the series that we've been in for quite a while. Now, we've had a few breaks between. We've had a flood, and then we've had Thai preaching, and last week we had David here. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't be here, and David's going to be here next week again. So we're kind of wrapping up our Grateful Living series, and then we have a few very interesting series is that's going to basically build on what we've been speaking about, specifically about the one we'll speak about today. So we've looked at time, temple, territory, tribe, um, talents, treasure. The only two that we haven't looked at is testimony and truth. And so today we'll speak about truth, and for the next few months, actually, we will build on this idea of testimony and truth as we go through um, the next few months in our sermon calendar. So today we're going to speak about truth um, and before we start, let's just close our eyes for a prayer. Gracious Father, we come to you and we say, Lord, as we come to your scripture, Lord, we pray that you would be with us now. May you lead and guide us in our um, search for truth. Lord, we pray that the same spirit that inspired scripture, Lord, will be the same uh, spirit that is with us as we endeavor to understand your word. Bless and keep us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Did everybody have a good week this week? It was good. This week, we, we've been having a really busy time at church. As most of you know, we've had the crisis center that was here. And at the moment, our church is still a very important um, hub for this community, um, New South Wales Resiliency. And I'm not exactly sure who is here with them. I know that the St. John's Hospital is here, the Red Cross uh, Services Australia, and various others. I think they have about eight stations in here um, during the week. So there's um, last week, there were about 100 people that came to this church every day to, to be assisted through the, the crisis that they're struggling with. This week, we had about 80 that came, and then 60, and suddenly it jumped up again to 100. And so they came to us two days ago and said, can we please use your church again? And we've had so many people come up to say, thank you so much for the Seventh-day Adventist Church for what you've meant for our community. And so that's great to know. Um, and yesterday, myself and Pastor Andrew um, met with various of the other churches that was involved in this, and we're planning uh, stuff for the future on how we can be a church that reaches out to our community. So for the next few weeks and months, you'll hear about initiatives that we'll run um, to reach out to our community and share the love of Jesus practically by going out in the community and doing those things. And the first thing that we'll start off, as we've spoken already, is this idea of building back this idea of bringing people in to hear how um, they can work through their trauma. And so if you know if anybody doesn't necessarily have to be somebody that's flood affected, but anybody that's gone through trauma, we want to be there because we believe as a Christian church we have a, a good message that can help people. All of us are traumatized to some degree, um, and we all need the healing power of Jesus to come. So we're going to invite you to invite people to, uh, to come to that. And so 
getting back to our series, we're wrapping up today, Truth. Um, I've loved this Grateful Living series. It's recalibrated some ideas that I had, learned a lot of new things, and just solidified some stuff that I knew already. And so today we're in truth, and truth is a very nebulous thing, isn't it? How, what do you mean when you say truth? Well, truth is that, what you, that which is what is true, right? But how are we stewards of truth? We've been speaking about this idea of that when we come to stewardship, when we come to grateful living, these assumptions are important for us. God is the owner of everything, and we are managers of God's economy in response to the, gospel, to the gospel's grace story. But when it comes to truth, it might seem a bit difficult for us to know how are we managers of truth, or how are we stewards of truth. And as I said, this is going to be a, an ongoing conversation. This is not just one sermon. So in your mind, today's sermon will be like grade one kind of stuff, just introductory, very basic level stuff that will develop um, a little bit more. And uh, throughout the series, one of the key things that we've looked at is this idea of entrusted and privilege. And we'll see in the next few months as we continue with this discussion how privileged we are, Seventh-day Adventists. And we'll touch a little bit about on that today. But as we speak about truth, let me ask you this question. If I say truth, what is the Bible verse that comes into your mind right immediately? Like if we speak about truth or something about truth, John? John 17, 17, that says what? Your word is truth. Yes, what else? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, right? And those two connect, right? The word is truth, and who is the word? Jesus. And what is he? He is the way, the truth, and the life, right? And that's what I thought of as well. When I thought about this idea, so I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what I want to discuss today. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Ellen White in Our Higher Calling writes this. She says, Christ, his character, and work is the center and circumference of all truth. Not just some truth, but all truth. We live today in a world where we live in this information age. It's now been called actually the disinformation age because there's so much disinformation in the world today. Like we live in this age where there's so much information. There's so much. And somehow the, the foundation, the epistemological foundation of truth is eroding. It becomes your truth and my truth, this idea of subjectiv subjectivity. You know, can we even know truth? Scripture is pretty clear that we can know what truth is. There is a foundation of truth, and it is not a possession. It is a person. Right? And Jesus is at the center and at the boundaries of that. He is the center and circumference of all truth. He is the chain upon which the jewels of, of doctrine are linked. And I love this, found, uh, this verse. It says, In Him is found the complete system of truth. So that's what we want to unpack today. What does that mean, the complete system of truth. Now, I want to unpack this idea of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, by not just looking at the verse, the one verse in John, but actually zooming out a little bit and having a big picture view of what John had in mind um, about Jesus, because he is also the one that wrote the book of Revelation, which is the revelation of Jesus. And these two books, John and Revelation, are intimately linked to each other. And John is doing something in his book concerning Jesus and truth that I'd like to unpack today. So uh, you're going to need your Bibles today, so I hope you have it close with you. Let's go to this verse, um, John chapter 20. I have it on the screen here. John chapter 20 and verse 30 and 31. So this is the purpose of the book. If you have your Bibles, 
and you actually flip there, you'll see that various translations kind of say different things, but essentially these few verses are the purpose of why John wrote this book. So at this point, when John is writing this, he is writing this as an old man. He is writing this, this is the last book written in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, they've already written their gospel accounts. People know the gospel story. They know who Jesus is. And John writes this as an old man. He's the only apostle that's still alive. And he writes this, and this is the purpose of why he writes the gospel of John, which is very unique and distinct from the other three gospels that we would call the synoptic gospel. So he says this, he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, these that that he's gonna write about, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So let's unpack that a little bit. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Now, Jesus ministered for how many years? Three and a half years. He ministered for three and a half years. That amounts to 42 weeks. These dates are important. Three and a half years, 42 weeks, which is about 1,260 days, right? That's what the, the Daniel said. That's how long the Messiah will come, right? Now, of the books or, or of the stories recorded in the book of John, only 30 of them are recorded. If you actually go through the book of John, and John is pretty specific on the days, you would go and start in John chapter 1 and start reading through, and you start counting on this day, three days after this, four days after this. And if you start counting them up, you'll realize that he only put in 30 of the days. So only one month of the whole ministry of Jesus is recorded, right? Only one month of that is recorded. That means that John is very specific in the stories that he's taking out here. He's very specific in the stories that he's taking out of the 1,260 days and placing it in the gospel. And now you have to ask yourself, well, firstly, why is this important? Well, the reason why it's important is that because John is very specific on which story he uses for his specific purpose. Remember, John has a purpose of writing this book. It's not like he's saying to himself, man, There's no gospel story. There's no story that's telling the the people about Jesus. No, 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 no. Mark has already written. Matthew has already written. Luke has already written. So there's already gospel stories around, but there's still a void for something. And so he decides to write his story, and he decides to write something that he only collects 30 of those days for a specific purpose. Now, if we continue the verse there, he says, but these are written, speaking about those things that he had he had um, put in. So now let's go to the last chapter, the last passage in the book of John. So if you have your Bibles there, I would, I would encourage you to go there with me. I'm not going to have all the slides up today or all the verses up, so you're going to need to dig into Scripture. John chapter 21 and verse 20. John chapter 21 and verse 20. And so it says, uh, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. So we're picking up the story where Jesus has already died and resurrected and Peter had uh, forsaken Jesus, and now Jesus had come to Peter, and he has forgiven him, and he, he, he has this reconciliatory pro- process with him. And at this point, when everything is good and well with Peter and Jesus, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who is that? That is John, the guy that is writing this. But he's not putting his name forward. So it says, Jesus turned and following them, the one who had also leaned back. This is a, a very important phrase. It's only used twice in the whole book of John. He leaned back against him during the supper. What does that mean? 
Peter is identifying and John is identifying himself. In, in, and Peter is saying, who, this disciple whom you love, right? the, the beloved disciple. Now, quick question. Did Jesus love John more than he loved any of the other disciples? So why is he called the beloved disciple? Because he's the one that loved Jesus the most. Imagine this. If there was a crowd of people, John would push the hardest to get through them to get to Jesus. He is the one that was lying on Jesus. So in, in what he's trying to articulate to us is not just saying, I was a lazy boy that was just kind of lying on Jesus. He's saying, no, no, no. Of all the disciples, I see myself as the one that loved Jesus the most, and I'm the one that tried to get the closest to him. And he's doing this for a specific purpose. He says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following the back, the one who also leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said, Lord, what about this man? What about John? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread amongst the brothers. That's, uh, that's key word for they were gossiping. Right? There's a gossip story going around that this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did where each of them were to be written down. I suppose that the world itself cannot contain the books that it would, that it would be written. So why does, why, does John, why does John end his gospel story with this section? It seems kind of a random section, right? Why is he talking about this conversation? Like, what does this mean? Why is this important? This is why John tells the story. John at this point is an old man, right? He's, he's probably in his late 80s, probably early 90s. He's a very old man. This is the last book written in the New Testament. At this point, he is the pastor of, the, of Asia Minor in Ephesus. He is the, one of the major um, pastors. And everybody is building their faith in, in some sense on him because he is the last apostle. And there's a rumor that is going around that he would not die. Now, when he, at, at this point, he is writing, um, and has he been tried to be killed? Had, did people try and kill him? Yes, they, he was tried to, they tried to boil him. That didn't work. They sent him, or that's why they sent him to Patmos, right? There were so many things that, that the devil and, and, and Rome did to kind, try and kill him, but none of those things worked. And that just solidified the story even more that he cannot be killed. And so people were saying, whoa, this, this guy is something special. There's something special about him. And so they started to look up to him, and he became not the medium to Jesus, but the end. They're like, let him give us a word about Jesus. Let him speak to us. Remember, he's writing this 90. He's 90 years old. He's writing this when, when most of the people that, that knew Jesus weren't alive anymore. People that were there on the mountain hearing Jesus speak, that ate the fish and, and, and the loaves, they've already passed away. All the disciples are dead. He is basically one of the, the last first-generation Christians. And so now all the second-generation Christians are building their faith, but they're building their faith on the word of John. But somehow John is saying, hey, hey, you shouldn't just build it on me. You should build it on Jesus. And so I'm writing this gospel for a second generation Christians, for a third generation, for a 105th generation, for the, I don't know how many generations, for our generation that weren't there on the mountain, that didn't see Jesus transfigure, that didn't see Jesus change the bread into wine, that didn't see Jesus on the cross, people that have their faith based on something else. He says, I need to write you a gospel so that you can understand. So the purpose of the book of John is for people like you and me to understand who Jesus is. To build our faith, not on men, but on Jesus. So he starts this. And so, so 
he's very specific in what he puts in this book, in his specific emphases on this book. Now, I just wanted to put that as an emphasis. So let's move on to this verse. But these are written. So he's very specific on the 30, um, or 30 days that he's drawing on and for a specific purpose to write to a second generation, to a third generation, a fourth generation, a generation like us that haven't heard it firsthand, but is building on something else. And he's writing for this purpose so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The purpose he's putting, the reason he's putting all of these stories together and being very selective, he's saying, is this story going to help me to get them to believe? Is this story going to help me to get them to believe? Is this story going to get me, get them to believe? And he wants us to believe in this very specific thing, that Jesus Christ is, uh, Jesus is the Christ. In the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, the word Christ comes from the, from the Greek word to anoint. In the Old Testament, there were anointed officers. So this idea of Jesus the Christ is not, we, we know Jesus as Jesus Christ, that's his name. But the word Christ is the anointed one. In the Old Testament, there were various anointed individuals. A prophet would be anointed, a priest would be anointed, and a king would be anointed. Jesus is not merely a prophet, even though he is. He's not merely a priest, although he is. And he's not merely a king. He is the prophet. He is the priest, and he is the king, the ultimate prophet, not the one that only brings the word of God, but is the word of God. Not only is he the priest, but he is the ultimate high priest, not according to the Aaron's Levitical priesthood, but according to the order of Melchizedek, the, high, the ultimate high priest. Not only is he the king of Israel, but he's the king of the universe. And so John is saying, I'm writing this book, this book of truth to, to uh, bring everything in line so that you know who we are speaking about, Jesus the Christ the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. And then it says to continue that, to know that this Christ, this Messiah, because that was another word for the word Christo, it's the word Mashiach, Messiah. So Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the king, Jesus the prophet, Jesus the prophet, that he is the son of God. So he is not merely a man that was anointed by God, but he is God in flesh coming to us. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John is writing, he's saying, I'm being very specific to this generation that haven't heard and seen by themselves. I'm giving them something. I'm building a foundation for them so that they can believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, in in order so that they can know this is how they get eternal life, how they can be connected again to God himself. Because they, they have been disconnected from the source of life, God himself. So now I want to I connect this story, as we're speaking about truth, to the story right before the purpose of the book, John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and John does this very, very specifically, why he adds this story before he writes about his purpose. John chapter 20 and verse 24. In verse 19 to verse 23, Jesus appears to his disciples, and then in verse 24, we, we come to the story of Jesus and Thomas. Now, when we speak about the disciple Thomas, what is generally the, the, the name that we give him? What is the, the moniker that we like? Oh, this is Thomas the what? The doubter. Thomas the doubting, uh, the, the doubting disciple, right? Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin and was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Now, today when we speak about truth, how do we verify if something is true or false? Like, how do you verify if something is true or false? We, we want witnesses, right? Well, the world that we live in now, a world that is you know, post-industrial, post, 
modern, um, is built on this idea. Postmodern is a, is a word that we use to say that it comes be after the modern age, but it's not necessarily moved completely away from the modern age. And the modern age is based on this idea of the imperia, meaning the experience, meaning this that we want to see it, we want to touch it. It's based on science, right? And so, so basically what he's saying is that I'm not just going to believe you. I want to touch him with my own hands. If somebody said to you, and if you were in the same situation where you have seen Jesus being crucified, you saw the blood flowing from his body, you saw, him, saw them taking him off that tree and putting him in the tomb, and they come to you and said, hey, guess what? We saw Jesus yesterday. What would you say? Ah, oh, fake news. Oh, conspiracy theory, right? You, would you also say, hey, I want to touch him. I, I, want, I want to see him with my own eyes. I'm not just going to believe you. You might be delusional. So he said, but he said to them, unless I see his hands in the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples inside again. Thomas was with him, and although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put, it, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him and said, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen yet believed. And then John adds this story. John, John adds this uh, preface of saying, This is the reason I'm writing this. So John is writing, in a sense, to show second generation Christians what is truth. And that truth is not just necessarily built on what you can see and what you can experience, but there's something else that for, for, for us as human beings, something else that he's drawing our attention to, to say this is where truth comes from. Now, this is the end of the book. We're doing it kind of in reverse. We, we're setting up the end. I want us to now go to the beginning of the book and see that John has been consistent in his whole, whole setup, that from the get-go, this is what he said Jesus was all about. So if you have your Bibles, let's go to John chapter 1, verse 1 to 18, and, and pick up a few words here. John chapter 1, verse 1 to 18. So that's the end of the book of John. Let's go to the beginning and see now with this new information that we have, with this kind of light that we have about the purpose of the book and why he's setting it up the way that he is, you start to appreciate the first section a lot more. When you start reading this, you're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, right? So it says, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, that's a very odd way for most of us to start a letter speaking about Jesus. But let's go back to this idea of John writing a specific story. He's writing a story of 30 days of Jesus' ministry, really, that he's really focusing on. And, and in this story, he has these play on words, play on ideas, play on the motifs. One of them is, is that he has seven miracles of Jesus. Now, Jesus did how many miracles? We don't know. He did thousands of them. We don't know. He went into some cities and, and healed everybody that was there. But John only speaks of seven miracles. Of these seven miracles that he doesn't call miracles, he calls them signs. And this is why I love the story that you told this morning, Katie. Because the story that you told was about going on a path, going on a journey, and not listening to the signs. 
Somebody says to you, look at this sign, turn here, do this, and you weren't listening or reading the signs properly. John is saying, in the story that I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to um, give you some some markers, some signs that's going to lead you somewhere. And he specifically puts us seven miracles, seven signs, and then seven I am statements. Seven I am statements is is this idea of, of him playing on this idea that Jesus is God of the Old Testament. The name Yahweh in the Old Testament comes from the root word, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. So when when John comes and he says that Jesus says, I am the light of the world, I am the bread of life, I am the door, I am the shepherd, he is saying, I am the ultimate door, I am the ultimate shepherd. He is saying that he is the Old Testament God. And then he's saying, when he uses these seven stops, excuse me, these seven stories. He's showing how Jesus goes and he is this new miracle worker. But if you go through all of the stories, you will see something very unique in the book of John that you haven't seen in Matthew and Mark and Luke. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus goes and he does certain things, right? He goes and there's a paralytic man. What does he do? He reaches out and he pulls him up. There's a, lady, a little girl, and she's sick. Where does he go? He goes into her house. He touches her arm and says, Talita kumi, and pulls her up. There are certain lepers that come to him, and he touches them. Right? Jesus is very tactile. He's very in the moment. He's really there. He, he, you know, he's not a person that is distant. He is very in your face, kind of. He's there doing stuff. But in the book of John, Jesus doesn't do any of those things. Seven miracles, seven of them, Jesus doesn't touch. In each of the miracle stories, Jesus is there. He's present. But the miracle happens because they listen to the word and obey it. So Jesus comes, the first miracle, changes the water into wine. What does he do? His mother comes up to him and says, hey, Jesus, there's this problem. And Jesus says, this is what they need to do. Fill those water canisters, right? He gives them an instruction. They listen and it turns from water into wine. Every single time Jesus says something, even when he, when he does his best or a biggest miracle, when he, when he brings Lazarus back from the dead, his ultimate miracle showing to his resurrection, he doesn't go in there and grab him. No, no, no. He says, roll the stone away. And then he speaks, Lazarus, come forth. That builds on this idea of the first verse, Jesus is the word of God. Somehow, if you, if you know the book of John, the book of John, um, the first 18 verses is the introduction to the whole book of John. It's the seedbed that all the theological trees grow up into. And it's actually a chiastic structure, meaning that the first part correlates with the last part, the second part with the second last part, and so it builds up to a middle part. So the first verse that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, gives this idea that the Jesus was there from the beginning. He is distinct from the Father, but is also connected to the Father, meaning that He is God Himself, but He is not a, a semi-God or a demigod or a der- derivative God. No, no, no. He has God, he, Godhood in Himself, in His own essence. And He spends time with God, the Father. And then in verse 18, that correlates with that verse, it says this, no one has ever seen God. Nobody has the truth of God. Nobody has the knowledge of God. Nobody has the information of God. Nobody knows who God is because they haven't seen him. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. You want to know the truth about the architect of reality? Look at Jesus. Now, here's the profound point. Is that word there, he is the only one who has uh, been at the Father's side, is the same phrase, it's the same word, that John used at the end of the gospel when he said that he was lying on the bosom of of Jesus. 
So this is what John is getting at. Saying, I'm, I know that I'm going to die. I know that I'm, I'm getting close to death. So I need to write something for my, my, my people in my church, the second generation. Then walk with Jesus, then talk to Jesus. But they need to have the same faith that I have. And I know that the faith that I have is not built on Jesus being physically there in his human form. I know that he promised the Holy Spirit to be with us and through the Holy Spirit whose presence will be here. And that the same Spirit can do the same things that what Jesus did when he was here. And so I know that I just need to be connected to this. And one of the ways that I can do this is to write a gospel order for them to strengthen their faith in Jesus that is powered by the Holy Spirit. And some of that is, is about the word. That means you connected be the word. So he says, listen to my word because I was the disciple that got the closest to Jesus. And I am but merely a medium to Jesus. Because Jesus is but merely a medium to the Father. Because Jesus came, who is God in himself, that could bring the full revelation of God because he is God himself. He is the anointed one, the Messiah. He is the, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. He is the, the bridge between humanity and divinity. As the ultimate prophet, he comes from God to the people, bringing the word of God, bringing himself as the word of God. He doesn't have to uh, decipher or think about what did God mean here? What did God, God intend here? No, no, no. He knows everything about God because he is God. And then he comes as the ultimate priest, knowing everything about humanity because he's 100% human, because he took on our flesh. And now he walks in our shoes. And so now as a mediator between God and humanity, he comes to God saying, I know what it means to be human so I can be this ultimate mediator between them. And then he comes as the king, the one that not only shares to us what the kingdom values are about, but says, I will live the kingdom values. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, he comes and preaches and lives it. And dying on the cross, he recalibrates our idea of kingdom values. See what Jesus is doing by coming down. He is not only speaking truth, he is living truth. What Jesus does when he comes to this earth is that he recalibrates our thinking and perspectives and, and categories in a new way so that we say, oh, we thought it was like this. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's always been like this. You've just been a bit messed up. As Paul says, the God of this age blinded the minds of men. And Jesus says, it's time that I, that I bring sight to them by bringing light and this is what he says. Look at the next verse. verse. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was nothing made that was made. In Him was the life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then he speaks about, uh, speaks about another prophet that would come. He says, that man was sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. So he speaks not about John the, the disciple, but John the Baptist. He was, uh, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light would give light to everyone who comes into the world. If you think about this idea, who, what does it mean to have light? Well, in one sense, it means salvation. But in another sense, it means truth. God, the architect, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, are the architect of this, not only earth, but of this universe. They have created this universe and set in certain laws and the way that this world should operate and this universe should operate. Now, our world is the only world that's out of sync of this reality. We would call this ultimate reality. God himself is ultimate reality in philosophical terms. And so we are out of sync of that ultimate reality. 
Jesus comes as the foundation of truth, truth, as the center and circumference of truth. He brings us back into alignment of that. If you want to know what is true, you look at Jesus. Because he is the lens that you can see things truly from again. To say, ah, that's what it means. Now, the profound thing about John chapter 1, verse 1 to 18, is that, like I said, it's a chiastic structure. It leads to something very specific. It leads to something where it's the crux, it's the middle point, all right? So a chiastic structure comes from the Greek word chi. And the Greek word chi is an X. So if you think about an X, there's a point and it all kind of moves together to a central point. That's the main thrust. So the Jewish uh, authors, the Hebrew authors, they use chiastic structures all the time. And the point for that is, is from a structural point of view, they are trying to show the reader where they want to draw their emphasis on. So when you see a chiastic structure, everything is important, but certain things are more important, specifically the center. So if they're writing a chiastic structure, what comes to the center is the main thing. So this is the main thing in the book of John, right? Verse, verse 10 says, He was in the world, and the world made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came, in, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, speaking about Jesus. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, to everybody that followed the truth that came into their lives, who believed in his name, believed the truth of Jesus Christ, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of flesh, nor of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the center for John. John is saying that when you follow the truth of Jesus Christ and follow and accept that, you come back into reality where you become a son and a daughter of God. And here's verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word therefore dwelt comes from the Hebrew word to tabernacle or to tent with us. So the story of John is saying that there is a God that came down to reveal himself to us to show the truth about reality and the truth about God. And he came and he did that by walking the road of humanity, garbing himself with the flesh to show and reveal himself, to draw us closer to him, to bring us in, in, in alignment with his ultimate reality. Now let's go to John chapter 14. This is the last passage we'll go to, John chapter 14. John chapter 14 is the verse now that speaks about I am the way, the truth, and the life. John chapter 14. So we, we, what we're doing here is that we're building context. We're building context, right, to, 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 to the center of, of truth. Um, so John chapter, 70, uh, John chapter 14. And context is super important. Let me, let me tell you a funny story that happened. Um, this week I was sitting in, uh, I go to the, one of the gyms here in, in Kingscliff, and they have like a sauna and a cold pool. So I was sitting in the sauna, just myself and another guy, right? So I'm sitting there kind of just trying not to die of all the heat, and, and I hear this guy talking to me. So it's just the two of us. So he's talking to me, and, and I just hear moron. I'm like, what? Did this, this guy just called me a moron. Like, that's all I And I return to him, and he's like, should I put more on? Like, as in, should I put more? He's like, yeah, thanks, right? So now, immediately, I realized, okay, context, what did he mean? Did he mean I'm a moron, or did he mean should I put more on? Like, the context helped me to decipher this, and I'd be like, what? What did you call me? right? Context is important for us, right? And so John is constantly building context for us so that we know what it is. So John chapter 14. Now, once again, to, to just situate this, this passage, John has, you know, 21, verse, uh, 21 chapters in it. He writes um, 13 of those chapters. He writes about three and a half years of Jesus, 
Like three and a half years of Jesus is captured in 13 chapters, and he only really focuses on 30 of those days. Then one week is from chapter 14 all the way to the end. So the last focus is very important for him. It's super essential for him so that you get what's going on, right? And this is where he brings out the Holy Spirit, and he's speaking about unity and all of these things. So John chapter 14. So John chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Let not your hearts be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. Right? That's a truth claim. I'm telling you the truth here. Believe in me. Trust me. I have truth. In my Father's house are what? Many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go and prepare a place for you. So he's prepping them. They're saying, hey, I need to go away. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas, the doubting one, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can, you, how, can we, how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do not know him, for you have, uh, for you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I, have, be, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am, the, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves." Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. Because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. So in the context of John chapter 14, Jesus gives the statement that I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, there's various things that that means. But the main emphasis here is that he's saying that you want to know the truth, the center of truth, the one that's the architect of truth, the source of truth, is God himself, God the Father, Right? And Jesus says, at the moment, I am acting as a mediator for you to get there, as a gate to get there. He says that later on, I am the gate. I am the shepherd. Not only is he the gate to get there, he's the one that leads us there. He, in, in all these dimensions, Jesus is the one that's trying to get us to the source of truth. Why? Because we are people that have been misled and, and, and have fallen into the disinformation that the devil has sown. And then he says, but I know that I'm going away and I'm sending the Holy Spirit to be with you. The spirit of truth that will lead you in all truth. Once again, zooming out, he is saying to us, how will we know truth? Jesus isn't here with us today, but yet he is. Jesus is speaking to your heart at this very moment as the prophet through his word. Because this is the written word as a medium to the living word, Jesus. If you just merely know the Bible, you haven't, you haven't received anything yet. The Bible is the medium to God. We don't worship the Bible, we worship God. And we, we receive the truth through Scripture that connects us to the author of truth, Jesus himself. So let, let's recap a few things.
getting back to this idea of truth, specifically truth for us as Seventh-day Adventists and what that means. So recap of words. Now, as we were going, I didn't mention this, but as we were going, there were certain words that if I put it up in a kind of linear line, you'll be like, oh, yeah, those things all remind us of something. So I want you, if, you, if I go through it, to, to shout out what this reminds you of. Right, so there were certain things that we've read, three, uh, three and a half weeks, um, which is a, a half of a week, um, 42 weeks, 1,260 days, signs and symbols, the word as a source of life, light leading people to salvation, God dwelling amongst us, house with many rooms, commandments. There's a certain thing in scripture that, all, that incorporates all of those things. Do you guys know what that is? The sanctuary, right? The sanctuary. Now, if you're not aware of the sanctuary, the sanctuary is the thing for Seventh-day Adventists. There are five things that's distinctive for Seventh-day Adventists that, is distinctive, that, that distinguishes us from other Christians, right? The first one is the Sabbath, right? We keep the Seventh-day Sabbath. The other one is the state of the dead, the way that we view the uh, human being, the uh, Christian anthropology, and how we view that in relation to death. That we don't believe that when you die, you go straight to heaven, but that it's, there's a soul sleep. The other one is the, is, is the spirit of prophecy. We believe in uh, that you know, the, the prophecies uh, or the, the, um, the gifting of the Holy Spirit, one of it is the, the prophetic gift. And that Joel says that in the end of times, we will have this resurgence of gifting again, right? The other one is the second coming, believing in the second coming. Now, those four, there's other churches that believe in that. There's other churches that believe the, the Sabbath. There's other churches that believe the second coming the way that we do. There's other churches that believe in gifting. There's other churches that, that believe in this, the soul's sleep, right? But we're the only church that really emphasizes on the sanctuary, we're the only church, this is a very distinctive thing, and, and we get a lot of heat for this, to say, oh, this is the Old Testament stuff. Jesus has come to, but if you start studying the sanctuary, you start to realize that the sanctuary is actually the middle of everything, right? Listen, listen to this. Uriah Smith, one of the first uh, leaders of our church, he writes this. He says, there is no one subject which so fully at this as this, the sanctuary, unites together all parts of Revelation into one harmonious whole. The spokes of a wheel considered by themselves and apart may be symmetrical and beautiful, but the uses are, uh, are made apparent and the utility demonstrated only when fixed together as the central hub and exterior fillies. They appear as component parts of a perfect wheel. In the great wheel of truth, the sanctuary occupies this central position. In it, the great truth of revelation find their focal point. Ellen White writes in Great Controversy, the subject of the sanctuary was the key which unlocked the mystery of the disappointment of 1844. It opened the view of a complete system of truth, connected and harmonious, showing that God's hand had directed, had directed the great advent movement and revealing present duty as it brought to light the position and the work of his people. So is there a contradiction? If you go back to what we said earlier, Jesus is the center and circumference. And now suddenly Uriah Smith and even Ellen White says, no, 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 it's the sanctuary. So which one is it? Because Adventists get a bit of heat with this when we speak about what is truth for us and what is central truth for us. And they're like, is Jesus the center or is the sanctuary the center? Which one is it? The server, Right? Is the, what, what is at the center of biblical truth, the sanctuary or Jesus? And the answer is yes, both. 
right? I'm going to read you this verse, Psalm 27, verse 4. It's called the Song of the Sanctuary. Song of the Sanctuary. Right? David writing this many moons before Jesus stepped a foot on this earth and John and all of us. Psalm 27, verse 4. Psalm 27, verse 4. It's called the Song of the Sanctuary. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek. He's saying there's one thing that I will desire, one thing that I will seek, one thing that I will pursue, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord, that I might dwell in the sanctuary, in the temple of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire into His temple. If there is one verse in your mind that you have to engrave in your mind, I would say it would be this verse. This is the North Pole, the guiding star to us, because this speaks about something very profound. It says that, and I think this is one of the reasons why David was considered as a man after God's heart, because he got this. He knew that all that he needed to do is pursue God in his temple. Why? Because there he would see the beauty of God. The center for us, the center of truth for us as Seventh-day Adventists and should be for every biblical-believing Christian is this idea that at the center is the sanctuary that is a medium to understand Jesus more. The sanctuary is not the thing. Jesus is the thing. The sanctuary helps us to understand Jesus. right? And so, yes, it is at the center because it explains Jesus. right? If you go back to the sanctuary, think about this. This is the sanctuary, and, and this is actually not drawn to scale. If you had to go and you'd actually go look at the diameters, you would see that there's two centers that's at the center, or two sections, if it was split into, into a half. The, the altar of burnt offering and the ark would be at the center of the two blocks. There's two blocks, and they would be at the center. But if you look at this, the, the main prophecies of, that's foundational to Adventist truth or Adventist understanding of truth, is the books of Daniel and Revelation. If you come to the book of Daniel, at the core of Daniel, there's two sections to it. The historical section, all the stories of Daniel, and then the prophetic section. The prophetic section, the main prophecies are Daniel chapter 7, 8, and 9. And they all build on each other. There's a word that they use. It's called recapitulation. It, it means that they re recap and ex expand on it. So Daniel chapter 2 is a statue with all the kingdoms. Daniel chapter 7 is the same story of Daniel chapter 2, just expanded a little bit more. Daniel 8 is the same story, just expanded a little bit more. Right? So each time you're reading it, you might be confused, but it's the same story, the history of humanity. Right? But if you read it in a Hebrew mindset, you will realize that you actually read Daniel 9, 8, and 7 in the way of the sanctuary, but in reverse. Jesus comes, and Daniel chapter 9 speaks about Jesus in the outer court, the Messiah, the Prince that will come. And he comes through, and he comes, and he uh, um, dies, right, on the, on the altar. Then he resurrects. Then he moves in Daniel chapter 8, uh, or at his resurrection, he moves into the holy place. And then um, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, it speaks about moving in from the holy place to the most holy place where he is there now moving to the pre-advent judgment. Now, what's profound about the sanctuary is that the sanctuary was a literal uh, place, uh, a literal building, but it also represented Jesus. For instance, he is the lamb, right? He is the water that cleanses us. He is the bread. He is the lampstand. He is the, the one that we pray through, the mediator. And he is the law. He is the, the, the Shekinah glory. So when John was writing in John chapter 1 about God coming down, 
He was speaking about this idea that Jesus is the temple coming to us. When you, when you came face to face with Jesus, you came face to face with the Shekinah glory. What's the Shekinah glory? The most holy place coming to you. God himself has a temple that came to us. And then he says, I want to make you a temple because now I want the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. I'm going away and my father's house has many mansions. What is he talking about? He's talking about a sanctuary. And he says, but you are a temple as well. You're a sanctuary as well. And he brings that down and says, you're a holy place in this world because the, the, the one that is holy dwells in you. Jesus dwells in you through the ministration of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that profound? Does that truth not change your life? So when we think about this truth, when we think about the sanctuary, when we think about Jesus, we as Seventh-day Adventists, I believe, have a great responsibility to share this message. Because I believe the sanctuary is a model for us to understand who Jesus is and the work of Jesus a lot more. Many other Christians, unfortunately, stops at the cross. Is the cross important to our Christian journey? 100%. Jesus paid everything at the cross. There is nothing that still needs to be paid, but Jesus didn't finish his work at the cross. If you just follow this schema and you follow the idea of Jesus the Christ, Jesus comes in here and he comes as the prophet, the priest, and the king. At this point, Jesus is preaching. You go to the book of, of Matthew, for instance. If you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus starting his ministry. And this is the, the emphasis of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Actually, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Matthew chapter three, 4, verse 23. What Matthew is doing, he's setting up certain things. There are certain breaks in the book of Matthew, three specific blocks. And the first block is the main ministration of Jesus, what Jesus is doing in this world. Right? So he speaks about the person of the king, who he is in the first four chapters, then the proclamation and the work of the king, and then the persecution of the king from chapter 16. So here he's setting up the main ministry of Jesus. Why did Jesus come? What is the main thing that he's coming to do? And he says, and he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and the healing of every disease, of every affliction among the people, so that the fame spread through all out Syria and brought to him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains and oppressed by demons, epileptics, uh, epileptics. Epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed from Galilee and De Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from all beyond the Jordan. This is given the idea that one of the key things of Jesus when he was here was what? To preach and to teach. Why? Because he is the prophet. In the outer court, he comes and he preaches and he teaches and he tells us what the kingdom is about. But he not only tells us by his word, he lives it as the king. And in that point, he is mediating the love of God at the same time. Then he comes not only as the lamb that is sacrificed, but the high priest that brings the sacrifice. And then we move into the holy place. Jesus resurrects and goes into heaven. But now what is, he, what is Jesus doing in heaven right now? Is he not ministering to us as our high priest, as Hebrews tells us? Has he stopped speaking to us through his Holy Spirit and through his word? Is he not speaking to your conscience? Is he not speaking to you what you should and shouldn't do, what you should and shouldn't believe, what you should, where you should be going in your life? Aren't we asking him as the great shepherd to still guide our lives? Is he not still there for us? Is he not the king on the throne? 
So he's still the prophet and the priest and the king. And then when he moves in 1844, when he moved into the most holy place, has he abandoned these things? Is it not the king that judges? Is it not the king on the throne that says who is righteous and who is unrighteous? Is he not the Christ that is anointed for that work? Is he, did he not self him say that the father has given judgment to the son? So when we speak about truth, gospel truth, the biblical truth, all truth, we know that Jesus is the Christ that came down. And the way that we understand it is through the sanctuary. When we come and say, help me understand this, this is the model that God himself gave. And this is not a new model. Go back all the way to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what does God do? He sets up a garden on a mountain, and he says to, the, to Adam and Eve, you will be my servants. You will be my image bearers. You will be the people that will be my prophets and my priests and my kings. And they, they mess this up, and God chooses another uh, group, right? He, he moves throughout the whole Old Testament to, to restore them back to that. And then in the New Testament, Jesus does that again. He comes as the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king, putting uh, in perspective what salvation is through the sanctuary, doing all of these things. And then Peter comes and says that you are what? A royal priesthood. To do what? To proclaim the excellencies of him who brought you from darkness untruth, disinformation into light. So here's the, the stewardship aspect of this, is that we are not just Christians to tell people oh, God just loves you. But we are to tell them how he loves them. And to explain the whole nuance of all of these things, that he is this good God that wants to bring them back to the point of, of restoration in Genesis, that he has a plan and that he's working this out, that this uh, explains to us the nature of evil, explains to us why we are in, still in this world, explains to us that he is coming again. It gives us a purpose. It gives us something to do. It shows us how we are rebuilding through this. It, 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 it gives us context to this whole story. It helps us to understand stuff that we would not be able to understand by ourselves. It gives us a system of truth that is built on Jesus. It is the medium. Think of it this way. If you had to explain quantum physics to a child, what would you say? I don't know, I don't understand quantum physics. Right? Say, say you, have to you have to explain something. Say, say if you're a mechanic, you have to explain um, how an engine works to a child. If you're a, if you're a baker, how would you explain baking a cake and how it rises and how all the stuff works together? If you had to explain chemistry to a child, how would you do it? Would you go and you would explain it that you would, uh, the way that you were taught, or would you go on their level and you would explain it in words? It is like this, but it's not that. It is like this. We do it all the time, right? This, it, it, this is not, this is like this. So God comes and he tells us a, a, a story to say this is like this. The, the book of Hebrews says that this, the sanctuary is an acted parable. It says, you, you don't understand how sin is, so let me tell you a story. And God does this all the time. He says, let me tell you what the church is. Well, the church is a family, but, but the church is also a building, but the church is also a, a, an army. But the, right? He says the church is like this and like this. So he says, let me tell you the story of salvation. Let me tell you the system of truth. Let me tell you what I am doing and how this is working, da, 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 all of these things. How does he do, do this? He says, there's one system I want to tell you. There is the sanctuary that you can live in. You can understand festivals and you can understand uh, days of atonement and, and daily sacrifices. Be like, oh yeah, that makes all sense, right? We, it's something for us to grab hold on to say, this helps us understand stuff that we would never understand unless it's revealed to us. So is this important for us to know and understand? Yes. yes. Now, let me ask you this question. This is a bit more of a harder question. How many of you would be able to explain the sanctuary to somebody that doesn't know the sanctuary? How many of you today 
would be able to say to somebody, hey, let me unpack the sanctuary for you and help you to understand it. Because if this is so central to our faith and we don't understand it, I think that there's some questions we should be asking. is like, why? And so, as I said in the beginning, this is what we're going to do for the next few months. When we come, after big, uh, come back from after, after big camp, we're going to move into a, a season where we're going to study the sanctuary for a short bit. Give us a framework to understand what the sanctuary is about. How does it work? Right? We're not going to do a deep dive. We're not going to do a PhD thesis in it. We're just going to do a framework to say, hey, this is how the sanctuary works. Because the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation both work on the sanctuary. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 7, all sanctuary. You go to, to Revelation, all sanctuary. You will not understand any of these books if you do not understand the sanctuary. So we're going to do a series on, on the sanctuary. And then we're going to go and do a deep dive into the book of Daniel. We're going to go chapter by chapter. We're going to go Daniel 1, Daniel 2, Daniel. We're going to do the whole book. And then we're going to go to Revelation, and we're going to go through the book of Revelation. So that we can say, man, we understand this. Not to say, yeah, I've heard a great sermon, and I can direct you to a sermon. No, no, no. To say, I can be able to show you. I want, to, I want, to be, I want everybody to say, hey, l- let me open the Bible, and let me teach them. Because this is not just my truth or our church's truth. This is your truth. And you should be able to say, this is biblical truth that I should be able to know so well because this is at the center of my faith. Right? And uh, so you might ask yourself, but what, what do I do in the interim? It's a few weeks away. You know, it's, it's quite a while before we get there. This is what I want you to do. Start reading the Bible. Go to Daniel. Go to Revelation. Just read it. Just read it. Like, read it right through and start from the beginning and then read it again and read it again and read it again so that you just get familiarized with the book. That you're like, ah, oh, okay, I get this, right? And then if you want to go a step further, David Ashwick is at the moment doing a, a series called OT with DA, right? Start, if, you, if, you, if you're on it, great. If you haven't done it, go on that. He's going through Patriots and Prophets, right? So you go with that and start because that's the story of the Old Testament. Start reading this. and Literally, just read it. Read through the Bible. Read through Patriots and Prophets, Prophets and Kings. Just familiarize yourself with the story. God gave us stories for a specific reason. Right? Nobody's asking you to write a PhD dissertation on it. All you need to do, take a few minutes a day and just read the story. So that when you come to Daniel, when we get to Revelation, and we start unpacking it, and, and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I, I know what's going on here. I mean, I don't, I don't understand everything necessarily, but I kind of know the storyline. I kind of know the flow of the, the narrative. I kind of get what he's saying when he says media Persia and Greece. I kind of know what this means. And when he speaks about the dragon and the seven churches and all of these things, I'm not like, what, uh, seven churches? I've never heard of seven churches, right? So that you have an idea of that. So prep yourself for the next few weeks. Start reading Daniel. Start reading Revelation. If you want to do a bit more, go through DA, uh, OT with DA, so that you're connected with the scriptures, that you're connected with the word, so that you can know when we start digging in. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we say thank you, Lord, for the beautiful truth, the system of truth that is built around Jesus Christ, and that you, our Father, comes to us, your children, and you say, I want them to understand, and so I'm going to use so many ways so that they would just get it. And Lord, we say thank you for this sanctuary truth, Lord, this idea that that we can come and, and understand beautiful and complex ideas in very simple ways, knowing that our sin that is so dark and so black, Lord, can be forgiven. How that sometimes works, we don't know, but we know that if we come to you, the land, the blood, that washed away it all, Lord, that that is a fact and a reality. And so, Lord, as we start a journey in the next few weeks and months in the books of Daniel and Revelation and understanding the sanctuary more, 
We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand it, not just to understand what it's about, but be able to teach it to other people, be able to communicate this to other people, may it integrate into our lives to truly be the center point as a medium to you, Jesus. May we, like David, say, I want to go to the temple. I want to go to the sanctuary. I want to go there because that's where I see the beauty of the Lord. Not merely the power, not merely the greatness, not merely the, the provision or all of these things. And all of the things are true and wonderful. But at the end of the day, we want to go there and see that you are truly beautiful. Bless us now in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.